1: My favorite foods are pretty ugly. They maybe don't have a garnish, and they maybe did take one pot, and there's maybe not a vegetable, and that is what I crave cooking. For me, it really was about getting back to foods that we cook, but maybe,
2: like, don't take a picture of. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn.
3: And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler.
2: Hi, Isaac. How are you?
3: I'm, I'm all right. You know, I'm really trying to hit the ground running this month before mm-hmm. classes start in a couple of weeks, because once that happens, it's like getting anything off the ground becomes much harder, but things yeah. that are already in progress are kind of easier to keep, you know, moving forward on day by days. And, and I think that's going pretty well. What about you?
2: I obviously don't have to worry about classes, but I would say that the principle sort of still stands. It's like you want to start January on a good foot or try as much as you can to do that. Totally. So who did you talk to for this episode?
3: I spoke to the great Allie Slagle, who is a freelance food writer and editor most prominently for the New York Times. If you subscribe to their cooking app or you read their recipes, you have almost certainly cooked her food. Uh, She Mm. also has a wonderful new cookbook out called I Dream of Dinner, So You Don't Have To.
2: Well, I can't wait to hear your conversation. But before we hear it, what can we look forward to in the Slate Plus segment this week?
3: Uh, I was interested to learn when researching the interview that Allie has a background as a food stylist as well. And she used to do that freelance on top of the food writing. So I wanted to talk a bit about that world because everything I've heard about it is very strange. And also how um, issues of food styling played out with her cookbook because her cookbook is like weeknight meals for home cooks, which is not the sort of thing that one normally gets out the tweezers and, you know, lovingly (laughs) arranges on the plate or whatever. And so, you know, how did she strike that balance? of making a, a beautiful cookbook with food that doesn't necessarily look great in photos.
2: That's so fascinating. I feel like food styling is one of like the big mysteries of the world for people who have no experience or knowledge of it. Um, yeah. So I'm very excited to listen to that segment. Slate Plus members will hear that at the end of the episode, but if you're not a Slate Plus member but want to hear that segment, why not join Slate Plus? As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from our show and other shows like The Waves, Culture Gap Fest, and Amicus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com workingplus to access all of Slate's content and support our work. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Allie Slagle.
3: Ali Slagle, thank you for joining us today on Working to Talk About Your Process.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Let's start with maybe the most basic of questions. You know, you do a bunch of different things. What is the job title or (laughs) since, since it involves food, perhaps appellation that you tend to go by? Like if someone at a party is like, Allie, what do you do? How do you answer that question?
1: I usually say that I develop recipes, which leads to a lot of confused looks because I think people don't really know what that means. And so then I have to go into, you know, when you look up a recipe online, like that doesn't just manifest. You know, there's <laughs> someone who makes that recipe, who thinks of an idea, takes it to the kitchen, tests it and tests it and tests it and then writes a recipe that you can follow. Right. And then they get it a little bit more.
3: And how did you come to do that? Was that something you just like always as a kid wanted to do or did you, you know, what's, what's the path that took you to where you are right now?
1: I definitely grew up in like a cooking household. Um, my mom was always cooking, always feeding. My books that I read as a kid were cookbooks, not, not necessarily like great novels. Um, but then when I was in high school, I worked at an independent travel bookstore. And I just loved like books and thinking about how they came to be. Um, And then when I went to college, I got an internship at a book publisher that just so happened to specialize in cookbooks. And then it was kind of like, ding, 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 like this could be a career. Like there's so many people that go into making this kind of work, but I was kind of like sitting behind a desk, like editing pages all day. And I kind of was like, where's the job where I can be in a kitchen? Or where's the job where I can talk to a lot of different people about what they're cooking. Um, and so I ended up moving to New York and working for food 52, um, which had like a very startupy vibe at the time. And so I was hired as an editor, but I kind of got to do everything. So I mm-hmm. got to learn how to develop recipes and style, um, do all sorts of things. And then I kind of was like, maybe developing recipes is my lane. Like maybe that's the thing that I want to do. And then I was able to go freelance from there. So it was never the goal, but I think it's, kind of the path that I have enjoyed the most.
3: Got it. And, and what era was that when you were interning and editing in the cookbook? Is that like the the rise of the celebrity chef? Is that that time? Or? Oh,
1: great question. So it was like the end of the blog era. Hmm. So all of the book acquisitions were kind of like big
3: bloggers. Got it, um, got it. The Smitten Kitchen cookbook or whatever.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I was I was there during the second, the first Smith kitchen cookbook era. And I remember getting a galley, like a black and white bound galley and just being like, I've made it. Like this is the <laughs> coolest job that I get this months before other people get it. It's that incredible. was really exciting to me. Yeah.
3: <laughs> That's great. That's great. You know, I feel like a lot of our listeners have probably encountered your work most likely in the New York times, maybe the Washington post, but most likely in the New York times you write for them uh, frequently and also perhaps coincidental with the pandemic or not, the Times has invested a lot in building out its cooking section and, and working with a lot of different recipe developers and stuff like that. I read that section all the time, so I have lots of questions about it. First of all, how would you describe your, your beat or your lane within the cooking section?
1: I think that my role is really serving the people that have to cook often. So it's maybe people who don't necessarily even like to cook or want to cook, but it's people who feel like they need to cook to feed their families um, quickly, economically, and hopefully joyfully. Mm. That is kind of my role. It's like, what am I going to eat for dinner look up one of my recipes and I will probably have many to help you.
3: Right. And is that the kind of cooking you've always liked doing? Did you go through like an ornate, I'm going to sous vide this and then with tweezers (laughs) arrange the, the herbs on top or whatever phase?
1: I've never been a project cook. I've always been a really um, like I cook because I have to eat at some point, either (laughs) soon or in the future. Um, It's also why I'm not like a super baker. Like I bake because I want to eat, a sweet thing, not because I want to like build like a many layer cake.
3: Yeah, totally. Totally. So do you have to pitch recipes to an editor before you develop them? Like, like, is it like when I want to review something and I pitch an editor be like, Hey, what if I reviewed this book or whatever? Is it, it, you're nodding. So I guess that's, that's.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in the most like businessy terms, a recipe is the product that I'm selling. And so I have to pitch the idea, and, and the editor has to, to want to buy it. And of course, there comes with that kind of the agreement that things could change once I'm in the kitchen. Like, things could just not work, or there could be a better way to go about things. But generally, yes, I have to work. I always work off of pitches.
4: Mm.
3: And how does an idea for a recipe, like arrive you know is it is it inspiration is it you go for a walk and it's this or is it you're eating something one day and you're like maybe I should try these beans with like a tomatillo salsa or whatever you know it's like how how does it come about
1: I don't know what other people fill their brains with but I think all I do is think about recipe ideas like it's like there's inspiration everywhere so when I'm going for a walk I'm definitely noodling but also when I'm eating when I'm like I always like look at, you know, the snack aisle in a gas station. Like there's so many interesting ideas anywhere food is made or sold. And so I'm always kind of mixing those ideas together and then I have like a big document where I just like jot down all those random things and then when it's time to pitch I I kind of formalize those ideas Mm. into something that I couldn't really cook.
3: Do you get inspiration from like art and culture? Like when you're watching a movie, you're like, I wonder what Lydia Tarr eats for lunch and then <laughs> it leads to a recipe or?
1: It really is like everything. Like I made this chocolate granola and someone was like, well, what's it inspired by? And I was like, well, the cliffs of California, I was just sitting at it and I, I was thinking about like a dark craggy food and I started thinking about granola. Like it's really, if you leave your brain kind of like amenable to let ideas flow around, they're everywhere.
3: Hmm. So maybe to save you at parties from having to explain what you do over and over and over again, you, you could just give them this podcast episode because I want to <laughs> know step by step. How do you get from I've sent the pitch to the editor and the editor's like, great. How do you get from that? to a recipe. And I was, I was looking up the most popular recipes that you did for the times. And one of them is one that I've actually eaten. And so maybe, maybe we could use this as an example, which was the, the Greek chicken with cucumber feta Ooh. salad, which I know is one of your, your, you know, maybe some of our listeners have made it themselves. So how do you get from idea to the thing we see on the page? Cause I have a feeling it has way more steps than most people think.
1: Yeah, it does. And I think a lot of the work that's important happens even before you go into the kitchen. So Mm -hmm. I think the first step really for me is I have to think about what the end goal is, because I think if a food isn't delicious and you don't want to eat it, then kind of what's the point? Um, Even if it's super easy, like you have to want to eat it. So for this one, I was thinking about kind of like a Greek plate you would get at a restaurant where you have tzatziki and you have a Greek salad and you have this kind of like charred brown usually grilled chicken and so that is like made by restaurant cooks and probably more than one and so it's like how do you make that selection of food where it's one person cooking it's not too many steps Um, a lot of my work too is like I think a lot of delicious things come in three, and it. but it's how do you make it in two steps? Because mm-hmm. I think for me, it's like, I don't want to do more than two things to make dinner, to be honest. It just becomes too much to handle. So I think I was thinking about yogurt as kind of like this unifying thing, because yogurt can be used to marinate the chicken, but it can also be used as the dressing for the salad. So... That's kind of where I started. And usually what I do is I have that as a guide and then I write down all the things I want to try kind of within that construct. So what happens often is I get into the kitchen and I get really overwhelmed, like just like excited by all the things I could try, but I really need to like stay on task because I could spend weeks and weeks on run, one recipe. And so then I kind of tinker with like the flavorings, probably in that one I thought about like the flavorings in the yogurt, like the marinating time, So once I get the flavors down in the process, there's like so many nuances within the recipe. I remember with that one, it's like I had trouble figuring out how thick the dressing wanted to be on the salad and whether like the runoff from the tomatoes and the cucumbers wanted to be part of it or you wanted to drain it off. So it's like all of those little tweaks to get to the dish that you have in your head.
3: So like you must be iterating a lot right like like you probably don't know how many times you made that salad but like how many times did you make that salad before you figured out like whether you wanted the runoff how thick the dressing needed to be you know or were you just spending days making that salad or
1: i mean yes but i think the thing too is um i don't want to be wasteful i can't just like keep making food over and over again so i really focus on different parts of the recipe so i like might start with the chicken or might start with the salad and work on smaller batches of that element until I get that right. And then kind of like size up, scale up. So, I mean, I probably made all the elements of that dish like, you know, four or five times and then brought it all together and worked on it as like one fluid process.
3: Is it weird to eat the same thing over and over and over again for like a, with slight variations (laughs) for a few days? Are you now used to it at this point?
1: You know, the hard part is that I cook dinner food all day and then it's, that thing is the last thing I want to eat for dinner. Yeah. So then, so then I have to like make something else for dinner, but yeah, you get, um, I, I feel like I get like possessed by the ideas where I just am in them and I get really focused on what I want them to be to the point where, yeah, I get really sick of them.
3: (laughs) And are you relying only on your own taste buds? Before we started recording, you mentioned your boyfriend. Does he ever taste the recipes?
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely need other opinions just because food is so subjective mm-hmm. and I don't think I'm always right. I think like the New York Times commenters are a great sign of that, that there's so many different opinions on every recipe.
3: Except um, wait, there is the commenter who's like, <laughs> these are all the modifications I made. Like they didn't actually make the recipe. They made like a dozen changes to it. And then they're like, and it didn't work.
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing about what I think about in my recipes, um, especially in my cookbook actually, is that no one really makes the recipe exactly. Like when Mm. you're cooking at home, pan sizes are different, stove sizes are different. You just naturally do ingredient swaps. And I don't want people to feel like they have to make the dish exactly because it becomes a pain. Like I want the recipes to kind of fit into your life really seamlessly. So a lot of the work that I do is thinking about, well, if you, what's like a natural tweak here, could it work in that scenario?
3: Yeah, that's so so okay, the recipe is done in the sense that, you know, you think you've got it right. But then there's also the like writing it up for the site, you know, going back and forth I assume on the, with the editor about what that intro paragraph is going to look like and stuff. I think of you as having a very distinct voice as a prose writer. Like we don't think about recipe developers as prose writers, but but you are in that it's a kind of friendly, approachable. It's almost like someone sitting on the, you know, the stool next to you being like, Hey, why don't you just do this? You know, has that voice always come naturally to you? Or do you think of yourself as having kind of having to get into character when you write those (laughs) paragraphs or.
1: I think the writing sounds like that because I don't consider myself a writer. Mm. So I am writing how I might speak or how I might text a friend but a lot of that came from when I was at Food 52, the executive editor at the time, Kristen McGlory, she really kind of believed in and really pushed us to just kind of not overwork things. Like I, I worked on an ice cream book and a salad book when I was there and I kind of was ghostwriting all these elements and all the elements. She was like, this is great. And I was like, well, that's the one I wrote in the middle of the night. Mm. And she was like, do that, you know? And so that's kind of what I think about, like, just try not to overthink it is basically my motto for writing and also cooking and Got recipe it. writing.
3: <laughs> See, I'm the opposite for writing. I'm like how much could you overthink this? Well, then, I mean at the same
1: more? <laughs> Exactly. I mean at the same time I try and say don't overthink it because my inclination right. is to overthink it. I mean writing this book, I was like what are words? Like how <laughs> do you put them together? I just don't understand it.
3: So when you've pitched a thing to the times a recipe to the times and it's been accepted you know uh magazines and websites and everything also have style guides they have kind of rules for what the m products supposed to look like the the new yorker's house style is of course very famous with its umlauts over the second O and coordinate and whatnot uh is there a style guide for recipes that affects you know how you're conceptualizing the dish when you're pitching to the times
1: Probably the, the best example of this is the ingredient lists. Mm-hmm. So for The Times, they like to have all of the prep work in the ingredient lists. So it will say four stalks of celery, chopped, whatever. And if it was up to me, I would do it a little bit differently. So in my book, all of that prep work happens in the steps itself. And I think that's just one of the concessions that you make working for, for other people, Um Right. And of course,
3: for for listeners who don't know actually where that word chopped goes in that instruction is very important. Right. A quarter cup of parsley chopped is different from a quarter cup of chopped parsley, because one means you've chopped it beforehand to put it in. And the other means you filled it with leaves, dumped it on your cutting board and then chopped it.
1: And I don't know if people know that. Right. Right. So that is kind of one pitfall of having that prep work in the ingredient list. So in my book, I say pluck one cup of parsley leaves and chop them, which I find to be a little bit more clear.
3: Mm-hmm. Is there a limit on the header and how long it can be? I mean, about or the lead and how long it can be about how much writing you're doing to intro the recipe?
1: For the times I have 100 words, um, which is Oof. really hard wow. because you have to exp- you know get people excited about the dish, explain its origins, explain you know, any important points, any pitfalls. And then I like to just include serving suggestions too, right. um, or like tweaks you can make. So I cram a lot in those a hundred words, or I try to.
3: That's wild. You know, there's that, um, I think it's attributed to Chekhov quote where he said, sorry, this letter is so long. If i had had more time, I would have written a shorter one. And it kind of feels <laughs> like, you know, it, pe- people don't always realize how much work goes into something as it gets shorter and shorter and shorter, because, you know, every word, takes on this huge weight.
2: Right. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Ali Slagle right after this. Listeners, we want to hear from you, whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, please drop us a line at workingslate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Ali Slakel.
3: I do want to talk about your book, though, which I really, really enjoyed. It's called I Dream of Dinner, So You Don't Have To. Can you tell our listeners a bit about you know, how you came to decide, all right, it's cookbook time and, and what the cookbook is and its approach?
1: Sure. So I never really wanted to write a cookbook. I had worked in cookbook publishing, and so I knew how all-encompassing it would be and how how difficult it would be just kind of in every sort of process. And I never had that dream of like, my name needs to be on a cover. Like that just wasn't important to me. But I think all of my work, when I make kind of a shift, it really is all about the people. So it's like, there's someone that I think I could learn from or that would teach me something or that would, you know, just kind of like generally be fun to work with. And so I met this editor, Jennifer Sitt. I was like, if I'm ever going to write a book, she is the editor. And so, like, maybe now is my chance. Mm. Um, And I think she really, like, understood me, but also understood, like, what I could do in a way that I didn't necessarily think that I could do it. And so the goal for the book was really, like, as close to my recipe notebook as we can get. So as close to just kind of, like, the idea moment and um, that, like, fervor of excitement of just like cooking being this web as we can get. So how that kind of came to be in like a very edited designed manner um, is 150 recipes. Half of them are vegetarian and they all are 45 minutes or less, 10 ingredients or less. Basically all of those constraints to me feel like real life constraints. They're not just like a marketing thing. I think it really is like most people just have that much time or they just want to buy that those many ingredients or have those many ingredients and then I think the recipes are simple enough that if you don't know how to cook you can follow them but if you are a really good cook they provide new ideas to kind of get dinner happening and what I really was thinking about is like there are beginner cookbooks but even great cooks need new ideas all the mm-hmm. time like dinner happens all the time and so you just need kind of like a spark and my goal with this book is
3: that it is that spark. Mm, That's great. Well, you know, you talked about the limitations, the 10 or fewer ingredients under 45 minutes to make no hidden labor is another one you talk about that. It's not like a quarter cup blanched, peeled and chopped hazelnuts or whatever. Right. Um, We love talking about limitations on this show. You know, we talk (laughs) about limitations as a gateway to creativity all the time. Did you find that to be true that like this box kind of you know being in this box that you imposed on yourself kind of opened something up? And and did you figure out that these were going to be the limitations before you developed the recipe or at some point in the process you were like, oh, this is what makes sense here?
1: Yes, to all of those things. Um, I do like limitations because it helps me rein in my ideas. Um, if I had like free reign of money and time. And a dishwasher, like, who knows? It would just be a completely different <laughs> situation, and I would spin out. Um, Sorry, I just
3: have to pause. You don't have a dishwasher? <laughs> no. That must be like – that That feels like for someone who is, like, constantly developing recipes and thus dirtying many pots and pans and dishes and whatnot, that feels crazy-making to me that you don't have a dishwasher.
1: To me, it's like I have to mimic what how this recipe will exist in the real world. Like if I had an assistant, that's just not real, you know? True, if, true. If I had someone going to the grocery store for me, like I wouldn't absorb that time and that annoyance into the creation of a recipe. So I try and stay as like real as I can.
3: Got it. Got it. Reading the introduction to the cookbook, I did feel a little bit like it is written in response to perhaps fussier cookbooks or something. Were, were, were you thinking about it that way of like, is there, a, not, I'm not trying to get you to talk smack about your peers or anything, but is there like a kind of cookbook you were maybe a little irritated by that provided some of the inspiration?
1: Um, I think when when you work in food professionally, there is a lot of pressure to make food impressive mm-hmm. or to make food photogenic. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are great and really fun. But I also kind of wanted this book to get back to why we cook in just a really, really basic way, which is like my favorite foods are pretty ugly, you know, and they maybe don't have a garnish and they maybe did take one pot and there's maybe not a vegetable and they're great. And and that is what I crave cooking. And so for me, it really was about getting back to foods that we cook, but maybe like don't take a picture of or like don't make a video of.
3: Yeah, I would say most of the food I cook these days is not super photogenic. It's like that bean stew is not going on Twitter (laughs) or whatever.
1: (laughs) I mean, I felt bad. I apologize to our stylists many times in this book because we did have to take pictures of things. But I just think like a brown pile of mush is so delicious sometimes. Oftentimes, like usually that food is the most
3: delicious thing. Yes, I agree. I agree. Maybe that's an idea for your next book. It could just be called Brown Piles of Mush and (laughs) just uh, a whole bunch of different ones.
1: Yeah, there is a section in the book called Make Mush. So I really went for it. Yeah.
3: Actually, you know what? That's a great segue to my next uh, question, which has to do with the way the book is organized. So for listeners who don't know, the book is organized by kind of the major ingredient, eggs, eggs vegetables legumes things like that uh and then it is sub-organized into technique so for example eggs is in three sections beat soft boil and fry hot whereas vegetables is in cook quicker or not at all roast and let them slouch and then within each of those categories i'd say there's what there's like six to six ish sub recipes so how did you come up with that organizational scheme
1: So, you know, those cooks that are like, I'm just going to whip something up, you know, like, I'm just going to like dance around the kitchen and like something's going to (laughs) happen.
3: Yes, I do. That's
1: (laughs) not like, that's not actually what's happening, right? right? They in their head have techniques that they know how to use in many different ways. And they know what, what ingredients can work in those techniques. And so my goal with the organization of the book was kind of to expose my techniques, basically to expose The moves that I make to make certain ingredients into dinner. And I would say every recipe I've ever developed fits into one of these categories. Mm. And a lot of kind of my ideation process is like taking a technique, maybe slotting in a different flavor profile or different ingredients that works with that technique. And so within the book, there are these sections on each technique, which is basically like how to do it if you don't want to follow a recipe, and then recipes that show you how to do the technique if you want to follow the recipe. And the thinking there was, you know, some nights like reading a recipe is just not going to happen. Like that is the barrier to making dinner. And so if you have these kind of go-to methods, you can understand how to slot in what you have and make what you feel like cooking.
3: Right. Mine is uh, beans and greens and a roasted sweet potato. That's that's like like the night where I don't know what I'm going to make. I have to make something. You know, I want it to be reasonably healthy. It's like I'm just going to go get some beans and greens and a sweet potato and then figure out how these things go together.
1: So do you make it the same way every time?
3: No, because like, no. you know, maybe there weren't good shallots there, or, you know, like whatever it is, or actually my daughter really hates it when I cook a lot of onions in the kitchen when she's, you know, watching TV or whatever really irritates her eyes. So then it's like for a while, I was like, okay, it's just garlic. We're just going to do garlic, no onions. And then sometimes it's like you have leftover tomato sauce. So it becomes beans and greens and a little tomato sauce. No, it's, it's, it's never the same, right?
1: Yeah. I read somewhere once that was like, I wish that measurements could just be like how much you feel like putting in, yeah. you know, how much you have you know, how much you feel like chopping. Because it's like, that really is is what's happening when you're cooking.
3: Oh, yeah, totally. You mentioned earlier on that, you know, when we were talking about prose style, that, you know, writing a book felt like a different kind of endeavor, right? There's a lot more writing in a book than there is in a recipe. Um, what was that like for you? What was that process like for you? You know, climbing that particular mountain or while learning how to climb the mountain, I guess. <laughs>
1: yeah. My editor, Jen Sit, was really welcoming of just me being me in the sense that maybe there would be fragments maybe there would be made up words maybe there would just be like a lot more playfulness than I would maybe be able to get away with in a newspaper magazine article and I think I really ran with that in a way that was good for the book I think too like weeknight cooking is so overpublished like it's like who needs another weeknight cooking book but when you read that a lot of those texts, they feel a little staid, like the words that they use or they, the way that they explain a certain dish is like kind of similar. And I wanted this book to feel different. And so I think the writing was really important for that.
3: And, and did you focus somewhat, you know, like I think about how you describe more technical things, you know, like like you're not saying chiffonade. <laughs> You're saying thinly sliced or whatever. Is that is that something that you were actively thinking about? Or again, is it just about kind of freeing your natural voice because you wouldn't necessarily use the word chiffonade in everyday life anyway?
1: Totally. And also, like, who knows what that means, you know? Like, for example, you mentioned um, slouching vegetables. You know, like, that is something that you understand. Like, you can picture a vegetable slouching when really that technique is braising. But who knows what braising is? Like, that... That could mean many things. And if you're not a cook, you might not know what that means. But when you say slouching vegetable, you can kind of understand what you're getting from that. And so I I spent a lot of time thinking about, like, if I was talking to someone who knew nothing about cooking, what words would excite them and make the food be understandable?
3: You know, one thing that there's been a bit of conversation about in the food writing recipe development world has to do with you know, issues of cultural appropriation and and which flavors or techniques or whatever, do they belong to someone? How do you credit it? How do you think about and navigate those questions? Because it's got to be present somewhere in your brain, because people are talking about it a lot.
1: Yeah, I think about it a lot. And um, I think there's no right answer. And I think my view of it is always changing. But I think um, a lot of the food that I cook do pull from flavors or classic dishes that are from cultures that are not my own. And I think crediting is, of course, important acknowledging that I did not come up with this idea that, you know, this has existed for a long time is important, but I also was thinking about that, you know, I make my livelihood making recipes, like I get paid to do this work and how can I share in those gains? And so in the back of the book, There is a page that basically credits all of the people who I look to for recipe ideas, but then also kind of acknowledging that um, so many classic dishes have been dismembered from who created them. You know, these dishes have kind of like lived on and, you know, we call them classic, but it's like, well, someone came up with that or numerous people came up with that. So a percentage of the profits from the royalties of the book will go to La Cochina, which is a group that helps um people with their food businesses specifically women and people of color and that just felt like the closest I could get to sharing the successes of the book with the people who have played a part in it Mm.
3: do you ever go through dry spells idea wise do you ever (laughs) get creatively blocked and and if so what do you do to get out of there
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, I wrote this during the pandemic, which was the hardest time to cook in my life. Um, and I I had real major slumps, which I think was hard. You know, people were talking about, like, I'm so sick of cooking, fatigue, fatigue. And it's like, yes, I hear you. But also, this is my job. And, like, if if I don't come up with an idea, like, I'm out of work, you know? Um,
4: right.
1: I think the key really is just to cling to anything that feels exciting. Mm. One example of that is I just like, it was a really low moment in a winter time and I was really missing my home in California because it was like citrus season and California in the winter is just kind of magical. And I was like, how, how do I feel like that? You know, when I'm really cold and I kept thinking about the combination of ginger and dill and how... That felt really bright to me, but also like super accessible. Like I could get it at the grocery store. I couldn't get like a perfect orange at the grocery store, but I could get that. And I put that on a baked salmon. And it was one of the most popular New York Times recipes that year.
3: Wow. Is there a white whale recipe that you haven't been able to figure out? I I saw this interview with Wiley Dufresne once where they were like, what haven't you been able to create? And he said something like, you know, for the last decade, I've been trying to do hot ice cream. Something that has the mouthfeel of ice cream, but is hot. You know, he and his his food lab. So I wonder, is there your hot ice cream? Is there a Moby Dick recipe out there that you've been hunting and, and haven't been able to harpoon?
1: There are things that I wish I could make faster that I haven't been able to figure out. Mm. One of them is lasagna.
3: Oh, my God. I had some, some friends had a kid and I made them a lasagna and decided I was going to go all out with it. And it took two days. And yeah. cost costs like $120 totally. or
4: something insane
3: like that. And I was like, what have I done? I should have just made a baked ziti that takes like 45 right. minutes.
1: <laughs> Lasagna sounds super appealing on a weeknight, but I haven't been able to figure out how to do it. And maybe that's okay. Like maybe there are right. some things that you just save for special occasions. And I don't need to like, you know, fastify everything. It's okay.
3: Right, right. Alice Slagle, thank you so much for joining us on Working and telling us about your process. It's been a blast.
2: Thank you so much. It was fun. All right. Up next, I'll rejoin Isaac and we'll talk more about recipe development, what makes a good recipe, and lots, lots more. So stick around.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of the IC terms and conditions apply.
2: That was such a fun conversation Thank because you. writing a cookbook is the kind of endeavor where I don't think I'd even know where to start. Like by contrast my fiance he likes he doesn't engineer recipes per se but he comes up with new versions of them that better suit his palate or like we decide that we like it better with x spice rather than y spice. Yeah. But that's not the question that I wanted to ask. What I wanted to ask you is have you ever developed a recipe?
3: First of all, gotta say, hearing my fiancee not getting old. (laughs) Still not sick of it. Well, I'm thank excited. thank
2: you so much. I, it also excites me very much.
3: That's good. Uh, <laughs> I think every home cook adapts recipes all the time, even if mm-hmm. they don't think about it. You know, to what ingredients do they have? Which flavor profiles do they like better? You know, I can't eat shrimp, so I might take a shrimp recipe Are and sub allergic? in chicken. Or Yeah, it makes me feel really not great. Oh. Um, I improvise soups a lot of the time based on what vegetables and legumes and other flavors we have lying around. And every time I do it, Anne is like, what is this recipe? I'll be like, I just made it up. And she'll be like, did you write <laughs> it down? I'd say, uh, no. And then she'll get mad at me. Um, also now that I've been cooking for a little over 20 years, uh, you know, I've really learned to trust the voice in my head that says this thing the recipe is describing is not going to work. Mm. Like I remember there was this recipe for this pork curry that I had where it was just like really clear that if I did the method described in the piece, the pork was going to overcook. And I did mm. it anyway and I served it to a guest and it was like chewing attire. Uh, And so I was like, God damn it. I was right. So the next, but the flavors were amazing. So the next time I made it, I did it as like a braised pork shoulder dish instead. And it was great because, you know, there's like the flavor stuff and then there's the methodology stuff and you can sort of mix and match those. And because of that, like, sometimes if I know a recipe works, I might play around with the flavors in some way. My, my favorite one, and this one I did write up as a recipe for my blog. So there's this, um, in the Mumafuku cookbook, there's this recipe where you cure tuna with salt, sugar, mm. and Szechuan peppercorn, and then you serve it with furikake and like an edamame cream. And Ooh. I liked all of those ideas, but like, I guess because of what I had on hand, I just wasn't interested in those flavors and I wanted to go South Indian with it. So the cure was salt, sugar, cumin, and coriander. Mm. The cream was a mango coconut cream and the mm. garnish was fried mustard seed and curry leaf. And that's actually one of the best things I've ever made. I'm super proud of that that dish and I, I would make it for Fancy Company.
2: That sounds really good. Wait, so you said that you put this recipe up on your blog. People can go find this?
3: No, no. My blog is password protected oh, and no okay. one but me can read it because you know, it was like a while. It was a long time ago and I'm, not super happy about everything i wrote there
2: that's fair well listeners write in and demand that isaac publish the recipe somewhere because i also want it um and to that end i wanted to ask you what do you makes a good recipe beyond it tasting good. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the big things, it really comes down to pros style. And you know, the two things that are so important to me are clarity and approachability, both Mm -hmm. of which Allie's recipes have in spades. This is true, whether it's a weeknight meal, which I want to be clear, like I talked about fancy stuff above, but 90 to 95% of my cooking right now is weeknight meals that I can make in under an hour. Uh Um, But you know, whether it's that or a project meal, you want to be clear going in, like, what is it that you need to do? What are the ingredients and tools you need to have? And how long is this motherfucker going to take? Because it is wild how much recipes smuggle in incredible lengths of time and it's not until you're reading it that you're like, wait, this takes three hours. Mm -hmm. I thought it took 45 minutes. Um, And then the other thing is that it needs to be written like a human being talking to another human being. I mean, there are cookbooks out there that I have and sometimes even use, but the authorial voice is so arrogant and confrontational (laughs) that like I find them really Uh, hard to deal with. Honestly, I'm like, fuck you. I can make a meatball.
2: That's so so funny. And I do agree with you some way where I feel like ultimately, what I prefer in a recipe is like, just give me the plain instructions, like chop X put X in the oven for X amount of time at X degrees. Like that's all I really need at the end of the day. And I loved what Allie was saying about getting so excited by how many possibilities a new recipe idea represents and then having to like rein herself back from going so (laughs) wild with it because otherwise she'll never get anything done. And I guess to connect this to kind of less specific creative pursuits, have you experienced that kind of sensation in your writing? And then how do you deal with it?
3: I've experienced it a bunch of different ways. I mean, I think that most of the time, writer's block is actually choice paralysis. You just have so many different ways you could go. That yeah, it's hard. I mean, sometimes it's burnout or whatever, but a lot of times it's actually like you have too much going on and like where do I even start yeah. um, and Bogart the director and theorist has this adage that like every choice is an act of violence because you know <laughs> it 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 murders all the other possible oh, choices that's so funny. and I, I think that we get hung up on that a little bit you know if I do this I won't be able to do that mm-hmm. and I always have a moment midway through a big project where I start questioning like fundamental stylistic and formal choices I've made you can get so lost in that just be like maybe mm-hmm. this chapter should be in the second person maybe it should mm-hmm. be in the a raw hmm. transcript of an interview you know maybe it should actually be a song cycle um, <laughs> I've
2: done everything wrong
3: <laughs> exactly I think for you and me we're often lucky in that we're doing project based nonfiction a lot of the time you know I'm not writing for spec an editor has already told me like we have come to an agreement about the form of what the piece is. Mm -hmm. And so I can't just go radically shift that without a conversation. And so, so that shuts off most of it. But like my novelist friends, I don't know how they figure it out. I really, really admire them because you can do anything on that page. You know, Mm -hmm. you could halfway through the book, write, Then a bullet came through the window and and (laughs) killed him. And then you have like halfway through your book, you need a new protagonist. I mean, it's just like, what do you do?
2: Yeah, I have to say that's definitely one of the tough parts about like screenwriting perspective. Like yeah. when you're go- when you're taking an idea to pitch, that's just your idea, and the, en- the possibilities are just endless. It's not like you have guidelines really. Yeah, totally. Um, to return more fully to your conversation with Allie, your question about her method being a reaction to cookbooks or styles of food writing that she found annoying was so, so funny. And I <laughs> wanted to know if that sentiment has ever informed something that you've worked on. I guess to a degree, you could argue that your book, The Method, is a rebuttal to just how twisted the general idea of method acting has become. But again, I, I pose this question to you. Yeah,
3: I mean, I, I want to be very clear that although I enjoy being pedantic about the definition of the method, that is not why I wrote the book. Of course, you know, like, of course. Like I, I You was... don't write
2: a book just for that. Yeah, uh, no. I mean,
3: someone would, <laughs> but I wouldn't. Oh, I God. mean, I, I was definitely very curious about the fact that we were all using this term, including me, and didn't necessarily have a clear idea of what it meant. I mean, that's an interesting question as a cultural critic, but that, that was not why I, I, I yeah. wrote the book. But I will say that there's certain formal things in the method that I was playing around with because I do mostly read fiction. And I mm-hmm. wanted to write a big work of nonfiction that a reader like me would actually read all the way through. And that meant working really hard on feeling like the plot was involving, the stakes were clear and high enough, and that the characters were really vivid. And doing that without betraying the rules of nonfiction. Yeah. So, I mean, that is in response to my dissatisfactions with the form, but I really went out looking for who are the people who are doing this so that I could kind right, of, right. you know, look at that. And, you know, to give That's just a healthier one... healthier
2: outlook. <laughs> yeah.
3: To give just one One example, you know, Mark Harris's Pictures at a Revolution, which is a was an instant classic when it came out. And anyone who Mm -hmm. cares about movies should read. I mean, it just knocked my socks off. I returned to it many times, both because there was actually lots of research in there I needed for my book and also to kind of inspire me about like, how do I keep this ball rolling over 400 pages?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I definitely have, still have to read that book, but it, I will bump it up my to-read list. Yeah. Um, Allie saying that she, if she can't come up with an idea, then she's out of work is, I think, something that a lot of creatives, especially if you're a freelancer, will relate to. But what she said in that the act of clinging to anything that excites you is the way to kind of solve that problem is sometimes really hard. Sometimes nothing excites you. What do you do in that situation?
3: Oh, boy. Yeah, it's tricky because we kill what we eat. Right. I mean, mm. that's that's how it works. And that's exciting. But when you're stuck, when you're maybe feeling a little depressed or a little anhedonic, I mean, that aspect of the life is, is really terrifying. Mm-hmm. I reached a period toward the end of last year, probably last quarter of last year when mm-hmm. I was just totally exhausted. I mean, as everyone attests, 2022 felt really long. The book coming out, teaching at a new institution. I mean, that was all wonderful stuff, but it just mm-hmm. totally drained me mm-hmm. when I I was younger, often I would get excited about something by finding something that I was really pissed off about. You know, <laughs> what's angering you, what makes you indignant, what's an injustice that needs to be fixed. I mean, that is a kind of negative excitement, but it's excitement nonetheless, and sometimes that's really useful. Now that I am older and wiser and you know, <laughs> all these other sorts of things, I just try to start with like excitement is sometimes too big a thing. So let's mm-hmm. just start with like what do I have questions about? And then let's follow those questions. I mean, to give uh, an example that you and I were texting about earlier this week, we're both fans of Hirokazu Koreeda, the Japanese writer and director uh, who did Shoplifters. And he has this movie Broker in theaters right now. And Mm -hmm. he's got this new TV show out on Netflix that dropped the day that we're recording this, although they've done like almost no promotion. And it turns (sighs) out the show is like not his usual totally devastating work. It's like a heartwarming comedy about teenagers. It's based on a manga that was also an anime, you -hmm. know, like all this, he's, he's going on TV. He's using it to mentor younger Japanese writers and directors. I mean, Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. You can see any number of questions within that that could evolve into a pitch. And then once it's pitched, the thing you get excited about is that you have a deadline, you know, and and that (laughs) starts to generate ideas and, and tensions, you know, and so I just sort of feel like if you can just find something you have a couple questions about, just keep asking questions until you find something that might be the basis of a piece. Yeah. What, what do you do when you're in this place?
2: I think something similar it's either like taking a break if you can but if you don't like just trying to do stuff that isn't necessarily connected to your work like for instance like just watching a new TV show like watching a movie that you don't already have an assignment on and just trying to watch it for pleasure and see what comes out of that exactly yeah it's an answer that I guess we've sort of given on the show a lot of times but I think more specifically for this context it is like you have you still have to consume in a way in order to speak on that and generate an assignment out of that.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, that's all the time that we have for the episode this week, and we really hope that you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like the Waves and Culture Gap Fest, and you'll never hit a wall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash plus.
3: Thank you to Ali Slagle and extra special thanks to our delicious and photogenic producer, Cameron Drew. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with author Chip Livingston. Until then, get back to work.